Now, we're in the book of Hebrews, and as you should be well aware of by now, uh, Hebrews is one of the most unique books in the Bible, and uh, it's also one of the most misunderstood and mistaught books in all the Bible. And I don't want to get into all of that, but we've been off of it for a while here. And I told you there's no question about that Paul wrote it. And in writing it, you know, he gives us uh, a great insight into uh, the nation of Israel. Probably the earliest book that Paul wrote, uh, which would make it probably one of the earliest books of the Bible, if not the earliest book. And, you know, he writes it after he gets up on Sinai there, and he writes it uh, primarily to uh, the Hebrews. And uh, Paul had a tremendous burden, if you know anything about his life at all. He, his, his main function was obviously the church age and the gospel that God gave to him in starting it, but at the same time, he never lost his burden for his own people, the nation of Israel. And this is where the book of Hebrews would fit into his overall uh, mindset of trying to reach the people. And because of that, the book of Hebrews is a persuasive book. Uh, I say that because it, it compares for the Jew what was in the Old Testament and now is what in the New Testament and showing you that the New Testament is better than what you had in the Old Testament. And they fundamentally go through every aspect of the Old Testament and then put it into a uh, New Testament deal showing you the comparison. And, you know, Paul's doing that because, again, of his tremendous burden for the Jews themselves, and he's trying to reach them and, and get them, and he's doing it by showing them a comparison. And so every chapter, or in some cases, couple of chapters or even sets of chapters, will follow a theme about something in the Old Testament being better than the New Testament. And we're, I, I think we're going to be in eight today. Uh, but just so we remember now, in chapter one, uh, he, he showed us how that he focused on Christ and showed us how that Christ was better than the angels. And the reason for that is, is because we know in Acts chapter seven, that uh, we're told that the Old Testament law was given to Israel by the disposition of angels. God used angels as ministering spirits in the Old Testament in a very clear way. But, uh, but now that the New Testament has come, the angels are no longer used in that capacity, and now Christ is, and Christ has taken those place. So he's showing you that the way that God did the Old Testament through the angels is and now he's doing it through Christ, uh, is better. And along with each of these chapters, and we've pointed all this out, uh, <laughs> there is just some tremendous material. I mean, it's just, it just like digging a gold mine with a, with a uh, snow shovel. I mean, it's just everywhere. So you want to remember that. And in chapter 2, then he continues on again, with what he does in chapter 1, and he continues to show us that Christ is better than the angels themselves, you know, again. And then we get into chapter 3, and chapter 3, all the way up through chapter 10, deals with an overall 
subject, which is the, uh, the priesthood of the New Testament, which is spiritual, is better than the Old Testament priesthood, which is literal. And we, we see that in, in kind of like in a parentheses of those chapters, chapter 3 through chapter 10. But at the same time, each particular chapter will deal with a particular issue or subject within that overall aspect of the priesthood. So you want to remember that. And in chapter 3, he compares Christ to Moses. And you could obviously see Paul's mindset with this. The nation of Israel uh, was so focused on Moses. And, you know, and we are told that, that a greater than Moses is, is coming. And, of course, that was a reference to Christ. But the nation of Israel was so focused on Moses and what he represented to them that Paul makes it clear that Christ is better than, than even Moses. And, and in chapter 4, he deals with the promises. And he shows them that the promises in the Old Testament uh, were good, but they weren't ever completed. And obviously we know they weren't completed because Israel's disobedience and walking away from God. So, you know, we see how that all uh, came down to being. So we see better promises uh, in chapter 4. In chapter 5, and this is where we were at last time we were together, uh, and I skipped 6 and put 5 and 7 together, and then I did come back and teach 6. But 5 and 7 go together, and it's it's Christ's priesthood compared to Melchizedek's priesthood. And we went through all of the stuff about Melchizedek. We now know most probably without, with, with almost certainty who he was, Shem. And, and the reason you can figure that out is because of the kingdom of heaven going from person to person. And most people don't even think about the fact that uh, uh, how long uh, you know, Shem actually lived. Uh, he was alive when Abraham was here. And so uh, he lives up till after Isaac is born. So, you know, people not understanding that and not having any clue of the kingdom of heaven and how God is transferring that from everything through the Bible, you know, is a pretty, uh, you, you can get messed up. So we looked at chapter 5, and we really defined who he was in chapter 7. And we saw in chapter 7 that the, the false teaching that so many Baptists get into is the aspect of uh, they may try to make Melchizedek Christ because it says that he has no beginning of days, no, uh, you know, uh, no father, no mother. And of course, and again, uh, I, I don't know why people just can't read it because it very clearly tells you once you understand the context of Hebrews, the way I'm laying it out to you, which is the biblical way, chapter by chapter within an overall context. The no beginning of days and the no father and mother have nothing to do with his physical life. It has to do with the priesthood. That the Levitical priesthood, uh, you know, had a mother and a father. It was passed down, but Melchizedek's was not. He represents the kingdom of God, and he represents, and the Bible clearly tells you he was like Christ. So he couldn't be Christ if he's like Christ. But, you know, 
nothing like a doctor's degree to get in the way of truth. And so it's a thing where this is where it all gets messed up. Then I come back in chapter 6, and we talked about the perseverance of the saints, how that they have to stay with it, and how important that is, and we we laid that out. Now that brings us up to chapter 8, and again, now keep in mind, we're dealing with the overall picture of everything that God is doing with the priesthood, but focusing on individual aspects of that. And in chapter 8, we, uh, we get to see the new covenant that God is going to make with Israel and how it is better than the old covenant, which is under Moses. Now, two verses, if you don't have by this chapter you want to get here, come back to Jeremiah, first of all, 31. Uh, let's come to Hosea first, Hosea chapter 2. And this, this covenant, this new covenant will be in the millennium. And it's the millennial covenant. If you want a proper name for it, the Old Testament covenant would be, would be the Mosaic covenant that God gave Israel through Moses. In, in the new covenant will be a millennial covenant. And look at verse 18 of Hosea chapter 2. And in that day will I make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field and the fowls of heaven and the creeping things of the ground. And I will break the bow and the sword uh, and the battle out of the earth and will make them to lie down safely. Now this is Isaiah 11 when the animals are no longer wild or ferocious and it takes place within that covenant that God makes with them, the new covenant in the millennium. Now also come over to Jeremiah. <coughs> now you'll find this numerous times throughout the Old Testament, so but these are two of the main ones, and you want to you want to put by Hebrews chapter eight, uh, and again there again the 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 consistency of the Bible. It's chapter eight, which is new beginnings in the Bible in numerology. So this is the new covenant, and he says in verse thirty one of chapter thirty one, "Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah." Now watch not according to the covenant that I made with them and their fathers in the day that I took them out of the uh, hand, uh, uh, by the hand to bring them out of Egypt, which my covenant they break, although I was a husband unto them, saith the Lord. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. Notice, after those days. Now there's another key that I always tell you that those days are always a picture of the tribulation period. Um saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother saying, know the Lord for they shall all know me for the least of them unto the greatest of them uh, saith the Lord for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember no more. Now that is a great concept there that I want you to mark in your Bible. And he quotes this over in Hebrews a little bit of it. And I want you to see this, that in the millennium, there's no more preaching. Uh, this is so foreign to 
most Baptists and completely out of the realm of possibility with neo-evangelicals. Um, but in the millennium, there is no preaching. In fact, in the book of Zechariah, it says that if you, uh, um, I think it's 13, uh, 3, that if somebody gets up and starts preaching, that they kill him, they thrust him through. There's no Bible in the millennium, and that is a shock to most people. Um, and, you know, it, it, people think that the Bible, um, and without a doubt, and, and I know somebody would say, well, the Bible says heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not. Yeah, you're going you're gonna to get a good understanding of this tomorrow when we get into John where, where it says, and the word was made flesh. I'm going to show you some things about your Bible that, and the word of God that you have probably have never seen before. And you want proof positive that the King James Bible is the word of God. You're going to get it tomorrow. But we think that, again, we think of the Bible when the verse says that, you know, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not. We actually um, get in pictures the Bible you're holding in your hand, that it has to be uh, always here. That in the millennium, there'll be Christian bookstores you can go in and buy a Bible. And, of course, that's just not true. Uh, the, the word of God will always be here. Uh, it was here in Christ. The word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Now it's here in a written form, uh, and in the millennium, it'll be here in the incarnate form in you and me, because you'll be Christ. So there's no need in the millennium for an open 66-book King James Bible. Uh, that is so foreign to most Baptists, but, you know, when it comes to the millennium, you know, uh, we don't sell them in a bookstore, but if you want, some of the, most of the books out there on the millennium are absolutely worth, I mean, Clarence Larkins is good. He don't get into that depth. There's a book out there by a guy by the name of Wolver, 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 something like that. And he was the big dean Bible teacher at, I think it was Dallas Theological or one of those places. He wrote a book on the millennium. I read it 40 years ago. It was the stupidest thing you ever saw in your life. I mean, you would better get a, you'd better get a, you'd get more truth out of a Mad Magazine. And most of you don't even know what Mad Magazine is. Some of you remember. You'd get more truth out of a Mad Magazine than you would... Uh, you know, some of his books. Just, uh, Wolverd was his name, Wolverd. And uh, I don't know what his first name was, but it should have been Willie because uh, he knows nothing about the Bible. And it's a thing where it's just a waste of time. And yet, that book was the textbook in Bible colleges when they taught somebody the millennium. And it's just worthless. And, uh, you know, so we now see that in the millennium, uh, there's no preaching, there's no churches, there's no evangelists, there's no Bible. You are the living word walking around just like if you're saved, you have the living word inside you today, but you got to have it in your hand because of the fact that you're still in your flesh and blood body and we're still in the church age. But when this new covenant comes in and all things are put into play, you now are Christ. You now are the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, except you're in a glorified body. You are the living, walking, breathing word of God in the form of Jesus Christ, made in his image. You have your spiritual image now that when you got saved, you only get the physical image in that day of the rapture of the church. That's why in Romans chapter 8, there's two adoptions. You're adopted now as a son spiritually. You're adopted then physically when you get the glorified body, and you become the walking Word of God, because the mind of Christ will be in you 
and that's the only mind that you'll have, and you have that mind now in, in the Word of God. So he says in verse 34, and they shall no, <coughs> no more every, uh, teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. That's what you do right now. When Chris Biscano and the boys get back out on the street or we do Bible study or Sunday morning or whatever you witness, that's basically what you're saying in a nutshell, telling somebody about how to know the Lord. And there won't be any of that in the millennium. So the idea in the millennium that everybody gets saved in the millennium just like they get saved in the church age, which is what is taught today, you know, uh, is just absolute heresy. Because that verse tells you right there that it, nobody's going up and witnessing to somebody. And the reason why is because the Lord is on the throne in Jerusalem and the whole world knows who he is. He doesn't need churches going around. He's sitting on the throne in Jerusalem, reigning over the whole earth. Everybody knows who he is. And so that's a very important part of, of understanding this. And he says, and they, uh, and they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, uh, from the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquities and I will remember their sin no more. And of course, this is the condition that God makes with the nation of Israel uh, in the millennium. So uh, you see that, and this is why when you get into Hebrews chapter 8, this is all about the new covenant. And the new covenant takes place in the millennium and then carries on through uh, in eternity. Now, with that in mind, let's begin here in chapter 8. And he says this, Now of the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. Going to sum it up. We, we have such a high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. couple of things here. When he says, of the things which we have spoken, this is the sum, go back now and sum that up. Chapter 1, he talked about Christ uh, better than the angels, and then the promises, and then the priesthood. And he's bringing everything up, and now he's going to deal with the new covenant and how it's going to be affected to the nation of Israel with the uh, with what he's going to set up. And he says, and then notice the word heavens, plural, because there's three of them. And we know that the heavens, another word for the heavens in the Bible is firmament. And just as there's the, the, the three heavens, the three firmaments, the first one is our atmosphere, the second one is outer space, and then the third one is where God's throne is, or the third heaven. That's where Paul was caught up to in Second Corinthians chapter 12. And then he says... For every high priest, talking about in the Old Testament. Now, he's going back to the Old Testament and showing you how that everything in the Old Testament was a picture of what's going to come. And this is incredible. And uh, the depth of this, you know, I'm only going to be able to touch on because, one, I don't understand it all. Uh, nobody has. I mean, and, but it's, it's deep. It's deep. And he says, for every high priest is ordained. Uh, I mean, excuse me, verse 2 a minister of, of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched and not man. Now this is getting real interesting here 
because evidently the tabernacle that Moses was given the instructions to was not the true tabernacle. There's another tabernacle that man did not pitch, but the Lord pitched, he made, and not man. And then he jumps back to verse 3, for every high priest is ordained to offer gifts and sacrifices, wherefore it is of necessity that this man, Christ, have somewhat also to offer. For if, if he were on earth, he should not be a priest, seeing that there are priests that offer gifts according to the law in the Old Testament. Now watch this. Who serve the Old Testament priests under the example and shadow of heavenly things as Moses was admonished of God when he was about to make the tabernacle for see, saith he, that they'll make all things according to the pattern showed to thee in the mount. So when Moses is up there with God on Sinai <coughs> getting the law, God is obviously revealing things to him, every detail of what he wants Moses to do within this covenant, Mosaic covenant, uh, for the nation of Israel. And he gets, the, he gets the pattern of the tabernacle. And now we are told that that tabernacle that Moses made is just a picture or an example of the true one that's up in heaven that God made. And that opens up, it opens up an incredible, endless uh, study on, on the universe and, and, and the patterns and how God does everything that he does. You know, you're going to find that all the way through the Bible, God, it's one of the key words that you want to mark in your Bible is the word pattern or patterns. And you're going to find that God uses them, uses it in Exodus 25, 19 uh, through verse 40. You're going to find it where he uses it in Numbers uh, chapter 8, verse 4. He uses it again in Joshua 22, 28. He uses it again in 2 Kings chapter 16. Uh, then he uses it again in 1 Chronicles chapter 28, verse 11. And he used it again in Ezekiel chapter 43. And if that wasn't enough, in 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 16 and Titus chapter 2 verse 7, we are told as New Testament Christians to be a pattern of good works uh, under everybody around us. So God uses patterns. You want to understand, this is Romans chapter 1 verses 19 and 20, the invisible things of him for the creation are clearly seen and understood by the things that God made. Now, the key word of understanding those two verses is one word, pattern. Learn the patterns. It'll open up everything for you that you, you have to look at. And it'll just be an incredible thing. The, if you, you remember that the, the tabernacle is, is made uh, as is, uh, that, that Moses made, is a pattern after the true one. So Moses' tabernacle has three positions to it. It has an outer court, it has an inner sanctuary, and then it has the Holy of Holies. 
where the Ark of the Covenant is. The heavens, there's three. The outer court would represent our, our atmosphere. The inner court would represent the second heaven. And the Holy of Holies or the third one would represent the third heaven where God's at. It's a pattern. Now, I'll just give you this and <laughs> for what it's worth. There's probably more detail and, and you'll wonder when you read it back there in Leviticus in those places, there is so much, so much detail down to the flower or ordinate, uh, the ornament flowers and the acorns and every aspect carved in that tabernacle or the ark, everything there, I mean he tells you how many latchets. He tells you the curtains. He tells you every detail of every piece, giving you the dimensions. And, you know, somebody would ask themselves, you know, why is that so important? And honestly, if you're just talking about the the. Uh, the one that the man made down there and not seeing the pattern, I would agree with you. Who cares? Who cares how many cubits it was? Uh, who cares uh, about any of that? But once you see that that is a pattern of the true one that God made, then all those, everything in there means something. And now the, you know, we talk about the veil and how thick that was. And of course, the veil separated where the ark was, where God was, that the light from that couldn't come through. And once a year, you know, the high priest would go in and, uh, and do his deal, but uh, he was the only one allowed in. And uh, it, that, uh, there are some authorities that say that that veil was 15 inches thick. Whatever it was, it kept the light of God's glory out of the second compartment, which was only lit by the golden, seven golden candlesticks. And you can see how that all plays together. And that veil represents the deep because it's the deep that is the endless water up there above the above the second heaven between the second and third that keeps the light of God from filtering down to everything in the second heaven universe. It's like if you would go deep sea diving down, say, to the Titanic, which is like five or six miles under the ocean. You could be the brightest, sunniest day, but when you're down that deep, uh, it's pitch black. There's no light. Why? Because the water filters out the light. And the light from the sun cannot reach that far down. It can't reach, I mean, it's black a long way, but I'm just saying that as, you know, two, five miles down, it can't, it can't penetrate. It can't penetrate two miles. It probably can't penetrate a mile. But my point is, is the water diffuses the light and doesn't let it through. Well, at the top of the third heaven, you have the throne of God. And that throne of God, God sits on the throne and he radiates light. That light is so bright and so powerful that is a time coming in eternity uh, when uh, it's going to light the whole universe. The whole second heaven is going to be lit by his glory from that throne. And the problem is, is that right now 
that can't be. So God has put his veil or the water, the deep across that. Lord only knows how big it is. I, I wouldn't even, I mean, the, the dimensions are in the curtain. I'm just telling you. You know what the key factor is. If you could find the determining factor about all of this, you could figure out the second heaven, but you don't know what it is. But I am telling you that veil represents the deep up there, and just as it kept the ark of God and the glory from it coming through into the second compartment, it keeps the glory of God from coming into the second heaven. And remember now, the Bible tells you that when he creates a new heaven and a new earth, and the light of God's glory from the throne of God permeates the second heaven, you're clearly told that there's no more sea. He takes it away at some point. And how he takes it away is another great study in the Bible. We don't have time to get into that today. But anyway, so what I'm telling you is this, without getting into it, because I can't get into it, because I know what it is, but I don't have the keys. I would say this, that if you wanted the dimensions of the universe, second heaven, you'd find them in Exodus 25, verse 9. I'd say that if you wanted the structure of the universe, you'd find it in Hebrews chapter 8, 9, and 12. If you wanted the shape of the second heaven or the universe, as we call it, you'd find that in John chapter 19, verse 23. And if you want the foundation of the universe, then you'd find that in Job chapter 38. Now, I I don't have a clue how to unlock all of those things. I just know, based on Hebrews chapter 8, seeing that this is a pattern, the one that man made, that God gave to Moses is the pattern of the true one, then the one that Moses got, the dimensions have to be relative in some way, shape, or form to the big one. If you you build model airplanes uh, or anything model, you'll find that on the box, you'll find what scale it is to the real deal. Uh, You'll find that if you put together a model of a B-17, you know, B-17 is huge. But when you buy the model in the box, it'll tell you 117th scale. It's a lot smaller. Um, They don't get much bigger than one one. 25th scale because then they start to get too big, the models. and But everything about that model is exactly like the big one. Even down to the fuselage, it's got the little rivets in it, just like the real one does. But it's scaled down. So what you got there is on a scale, the tabernacle that Moses make is 172 scale and the full scale up here is Lord knows what it is. And I'm not saying that Moses is 172. I'm just saying that's the comparison. You got a very small version in scale to the big one, but everything in it means something and is the same. And when you start to figure all those things out, then you get the complete picture of what God has done, what he's doing, and how immense this universe is. And it's a thing where, you know, it's... uh, and again, if you would, uh, if you would uh, get into this and you want to get a closer picture of it, 
Um, you would get into uh, a study of the Great Pyramid over there uh, in Giza. And I don't know who, nobody knows for sure who built it. It may be pre-flood. It could be, most certainly. Uh, I, I, you don't know. But I'll tell you, whoever built it understood uh, what was going on. And it's, a, it's an earthly model that shows everything that God did in creation. It's one of the most amazing things that you'll ever find. So he says in verse 5, that the Old Testament priest served under the example of the shadow of heavenly things as Moses was admonished of God when he was about to make the tabernacle. For see, saith he, that thou make all things according to the pattern showed to thee in the mount. You know, there's another great practical thing here that's always amazed me that I think is really good for you and for me, even though we don't do it as good as we should. You realize when you get into that tabernacle, um, the details of it, there were three basic families that took care of all that. You know, you wonder, you know, how it was done, who did it. The Bible tells you that there's three basic families uh, out of the tribe of Levi who takes care of that. And it wasn't a fact where they do what we do, have a sign-up sheet out there. We're going to put the tabernacle up today. Everybody wants to help us do that. (laughs) That's the way we do it. These three families were assigned that. And if you go through and you study these three families, they're designated with different aspects of it. And the thing that's absolutely amazing to me, absolutely amazing, Do you know how many times in 40 years they had to put that up and take it down? I mean, I don't even even know how to wrap my mind around that. And you know what? (laughs) Here's the practical. Let's say they did it 500 times a year. Let's just say they did it 100 times a year. And they did it for 40 years. You can figure the math on that. Every time they did it, it had to be done the exact same way, the complete same way, with every piece exactly the way that God told Moses that it had to go together. Incredible. Incredible. I don't know how you capitalize something by speaking. Incredible! There you did it. Incredible. Attention to detail. Now, human nature. We have something we do over and over and over and over and over again. You know what we do? We all do it. I'm probably more guilty of it than any of you. We always come up with a faster way to do it that we can leave parts out and still get the job done. That's what we do. I do it. I buy something that has to go together with the directions. I never look at the directions. I get Sam. I call Sam and his brother. They do it. And you know what? I can't ever think. I'm just going to be honest with this. I can't ever think of anything that I ever put together that I didn't have pieces left over when I was done. You know why? Because I found out I could do a better job of it or a better job. My satisfaction, I mean, who cares if it fell apart a week later? It's a thing where... 
I said to myself, I do it. And I know you do it because you're worse than I am. I do it. I say, oh, I can skip that part. I, I can do that without that part. It's a thing, and, so, and I'll be honest with you. Sometimes I, what comes to mind is you, you build something and it's got those little wheelie roller casters that go in the bottom, four legs, you know, the, so it rolls. And some of them are set up, if you, don't, if you don't pay attention, that two of them are fixed. They don't swivel, and two of them swivel. So you got to put them on right, otherwise you can't move it into position. Now, I've been guilty of that where I, don't, I, I see the roller casters. I see the little holes in the bottom of the legs. Hey, and I put the wrong ones in the wrong place. And now that I've got it all together, I realize that I can't move it like I should. You know, what do I do? I just pick the sucker up and put it where I want and don't worry about moving it. You see, that's human nature. We always try to find a shortcut to things instead of following the details to the end. Now, I'll be honest with you, guys like you, you you're so good at what you do and everybody else that, that builds stuff, and we've got some great guys that can build stuff. Jeremy McClanahan's another one. You guys build stuff, you follow everything down the line. That's why I could never work for you. You'd fire me the first day. You'd send me out for donuts. You wouldn't have me anywhere near anything. Because I just, I look at something and I, I don't care what it is. You know, that's why it, in my house, my wife doesn't let me fix anything. And the reason for that, if Bubba was here, he'd be dying laughing right now. The gutter thing, well, you know, the gutter thing fell down off the house, remember that thing? And how did I fix it? Duct tape. I didn't go to the hardware store and get a brace. You did. But for five years, that was duct taped up there. And you guys can laugh, but it lasted five years. I mean, you know, God, God did three things. He created the universe, he gave us the Bible, and then he made duct tape. And it's, it's, it's what, you know, it's, it's, it's what Jesus uses to hold everything together. I'm just telling you that. But, you know, I'm just the way I am. And, I, and I'm not happy about that. That's, that's to my shame. Because I chase, there's only one thing in my life ever that I stayed everything with the details with. It's the Bible. Everything else in life, I just fixed it the way I wanted it to go. And if it didn't work, you know what? It works good enough for me. That's stupid. But that's human nature. But can you imagine that those guys, let's say they did it 100 times a year, times 40 years. More than that. They had to do it every time they stopped. Every time they had to put that thing together exactly the way God said it even though in their minds they would have said, I could save us a couple hours work on this because these parts right here, we can get by without them. And you know, there's a lot of people that approach the Bible that same way. You think you can get by without all the pieces? And you may be able to fix your gutter with duct tape. You may be able to get by with the caster wheels being on backwards, but you'll never get by that way when it comes to the Bible. And that's why when you see things like that and you go in, inside everything and you look at the people who are responsible for that, the three families, and, and I'm going to tell you, it carries on from the Bible because the tabernacle and the temple 
And the ark and tabernacle and temple are used interchangeably in the Bible. Uh, when, you, when, you, when you see that, you realize that it was the beginning of, that was their ministry. And it shows you that your, detail, your attention to detail in the Bible needs to carry over to your attention to detail in dealing with people in the ministry. Not missing anything. And I know we're human and we all miss things. I get that. Some of you are absolutely incredible at it. You really are. You don't miss anything. And, uh, you know, it's a thing where I, I, I'm amazed that you can look at any situation or you can deal with any situation or you deal with people. And you're always six steps ahead of whatever that person is at because you know the pattern. And you're always there. And, and that's an incredible thing. And that's not, that's not a... That's not a a attribute to you being a wonderful person or you having great character. You know what that's an attribute to? Goes back to your attention to detail in the Bible. You don't let anything go missed there. You won't let anything missed out here. And, you know, that's what separates the men from the boys when it comes to the Bible. You know, I saw that story and I did a great, for my own personal self, a great study on those families. And I watched how that, you know, when the camp of Israel settled down, the ark was in the middle. Now, these three families were at the heartbeat of everything. Then you had the 12 tribes that were around that. They were not as involved, but they're under the authority and they're following it. But then you had the, the mixed multitude that were in the outermost parts of the camp. They got as far away from the central ark as they could. And I thought to myself, you know what? That's a picture of every church. You have Jesus Christ, the Word of God in the center, You'll have families that are right there camped with it and are doing the work. Then you'll have people out there that are good people. They come to church, but they just don't really extend themselves. And you always got the outer camp. You got the outer fringe, the people that, you know, they're the first ones to complain. They're the first ones that don't do anything, but they're always the first ones to complain about something. They're the first ones that get their nose bit out of joint because they're so far out from the central arc. And, you know, I, I just... When I, when I started this, when I did Hebrews 30 years ago, maybe 40 years ago, you know, I, 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 these are things that I saw that kept me from getting through the book really fast because I stopped and did, got all the details. And I remember, you know, I remember doing this very thing here, looking at it and thinking to myself, do you know how many times that sucker had to be put up and taken down? And every time it had to be done exactly the way God said it, without any deviation to it, without any... Nobody could be done and saying it's up. What's that you got in your box? Well, there's some pieces that are left over. We just didn't really need them. Uh Uh-uh. Everything meant something. And in your Bible, there can never be any pieces left over. You know, that's the key to heresy, understanding heresy. Was heresy or bad teaching, there'll always be pieces left over. You got to snip out. I mean, these guys that teach... (coughs) These guys that teach that they're saved the same way all through the Bible. And they get into the millennium and they say, well, they're saved in the millennium just like we are saved. Or they're saved in Genesis 6 just like we're saved. You know what you got to do? You got too many pieces left over. You can get up there and talk about the millennium and say, no, everybody in the millennium is saved just like you in spite of what the verse just said. And then you come over to Revelation chapter 22, verse 14, and you got a place where it says that somebody's going to have a right to eat of the tree of life in the millennium and eternity. So now you know what you got to do? That's a piece left over. 
You know how scholarship and the Baptists and the neo-evangelicals deal with parts left over? They'll tell you Revelation 22, 14 shouldn't be in your Bible. That's how they snip it out. It's exactly what they do. They just take these parts. They don't know what to do with them, so they throw them away. They say, we don't need that part because I'm sure that this is the way it goes. And they're not. So it's a, to me, I, 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 I tell you that because, you know, it's one of the, it's one of the absolute key fundamental aspects of your learning your Bible. And you know as well as I do, Institute is not about just teaching you the Bible. This is why I wanted to get back to it. With where we're at now with the Timothy groups, and boy, they are going good. With the uh, uh, Lifeline groups, they are going phenomenal. Everything is on fire and moving. The tiny tot, tater tots, or whatever they are, they had a they had a great time the other day. The craft thing is going to be good. You know, uh, the discipleships are fine and principles are fine. And this is this is my time with you. This is my time to not only teach you the Bible in a systematic way, but to give you direction that together we get on the same page with ministry. What I just gave you is vital. And I, I don't necessarily would not do that on a Sunday morning, uh, but I would do it here because here and the people that are online this morning, a part of this around the country, um, you're the cream of the crop. Uh, you know, I don't know if you know it or not. You probably don't uh, if you look at But out there online on Thursday night and probably this morning and uh, certainly on Sunday morning around this country, there's some guys and gals out there who really know their Bible. They're really good Bible students. And uh, they, it, it's a, you know, I read those uh, all the time. And they really, 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 you, you get to know them via, you know, the questions or the comments. And, I mean, I realize that you, you, we pretty much got the idiots off of it. They don't bother us anymore. It's now people who are dedicated to learning. And, but this is my time with you, you being here today, of where we're going. I can give you instructions. We have the oneness, togetherness that I've really missed, even more than people ministry. And I really like people ministry. But here we're down in the dirt together. Here's where I can, this is to me to you. The people ministry is me to you to other people. And you, you do good with that, but this is me and you. This is where we have our time together where I can teach you the Bible the way I want to teach it to you to get you to do and go the direction that you need to go. And that's why it's so workable for us. So, you know, I give you little things like that with the, you know, with the, uh, uh, with the, the families, you know, and, and how that, that ark and that tabernacle and show you how that that is a model. And I, I don't, uh, you know, the, the closest I got of anybody getting a handle on some of this stuff was uh, Arthur Pink in his, in his Gleanings in Exodus. He gets into the tabernacle in a fairly good way. He doesn't get into it in a deep depth way, but he gives you enough practical application that, that it's worth reading and it's good. Uh, but he doesn't get into the doctrinal depth of it. And if he if he wouldn't have if he would have he had never turned out to be a Calvinist. But it's a thing where you know it's it's just it's where it's at. And so he says there that that Moses was told to do it exactly the way that God told him to do it. And for the next forty years, really beyond that, because uh, you know the the temple isn't really built. Uh, the temple is up to what First Samuel five. 
uh, or up to Solomon is in a tent. So, and that's a great key for all you people out there thinking, well, how are they going to build the temple before this tribulation gets here? Well, you know what? It may not be the temple you think it is. But that's another story. Anyway, so what he's saying here then in verse 6, but now, say, Moses was told in the Old Testament, but now hath he obtained a more excellent ministry, a better one, by how much also he is mediator of a better covenant which was established upon better promises. You see? And when we got into chapter 4, we saw that God has some better promises for them, but the promises that they had gotten in the Old Testament never led to their rest. It never led to a fulfillment because of their disobedience. And of course, you already saw here back in, in uh uh, Jeremiah and also Hosea, that he's going to forgive their iniquities and uh, not going to remember their sin anymore. And then he gives them a new covenant. And that new covenant is best on better promises because it's based on Christ. And this is the promises that God wanted to give the nation of Israel at the first coming of Christ, but they rejected it. And so the promises got postponed. And so God now can't give them the same uh, covenant based on the Old Testament because that was under the law. So now he's going to give them a new covenant based on Christ. And, you know, and it's going to be established on better promises. So this will be the millennial reign of Christ, which moves into the government structure of eternity. For if that first covenant, verse 7, for if that first covenant had been faultless, that's the covenant with Moses, there should be no place uh, be sought for the second. For finding fault with them, he saith, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Now you can begin to see how that, <clears throat> if you're one of these idiots who try to teach that the book of Hebrews is written to Hebrew Christians, that by the time you get to this chapter, and even long before you got here, you see how you fall on your face. He's telling you that this chapter in particular and the rest of the whole book is not to you directly. It's to you indirectly, but it's to the nation of Israel and the house of Judah. And it's based on a new covenant. The word covenant never fits into Christianity. You don't get a covenant. And uh, it's a thing where uh, you get salvation, but they don't get salvation like you get it, but they get a covenant that leads to a national salvation. And so if the first covenant had been faultless, uh, which it wasn't because they, they caused it to fail by their disobedience. So he says, for finding fault with them, he saith, finding fault with them because of the disobedience. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers, in the day when I took them by the hand and led them out of the land of Egypt because they continued not in my covenant. You see what happened? They didn't continue in it. And that was the problem. Uh, because they continued not in my covenant and I regarded them not, saith the Lord. In other words, when they dumped, the covenant, when they dumped God, he dumped them. Great principle. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. There again, you can't miss it. This is all dealing with the Jew. 
It has nothing to do with the church in any way, shape, or form. Chapter 8 doesn't, chapter 7 doesn't, chapter 6 doesn't, chapter 5 doesn't, chapter 4, 3, 2, 1, 0. None of them do. They're dealing with the nation of Israel under the guidelines of Paul writing to them, showing them that what they have lost and given up, there's something coming that is better. And he says, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, tribulation again, uh, saith the Lord, I will put my laws in their mind and write them in their hearts and I will be to them a God and they shall be my people. This is Hosea 2.18 where we were at here. And they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the last to the greatest. Again, this is going back and quoting that. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness. Now, now, let me just say this. This is another thing you want to catch. Thursday night, the question came in about Romans chapter uh, 4, uh, verses 1 through 8. And I showed you how that God takes an Old Testament passage to Israel, and then when Paul uses it into the church, he followed the New Testament church doctrine, and he changes a couple words in that from where it went because it doesn't, he's not writing to the Israel anymore in the Old Testament. He's writing to the church. So he takes the principle, the verse, but he changes the verse to fit into the church age. I showed you two examples of that. You notice he ain't changing anything here. You, kept, you caught that. He's quoting it verbatim. He's changing anything from the Old Testament to, to the book of Hebrews. You know why? Because he's still talking to the nation of Israel. None of this applies to the church. So he's coming straight across the board. And the other two places I showed you, and there's other places as an example, I showed you how when Paul took that quote out of the Old Testament, he had to change it to fit into the New Testament, or he'd violate New Testament doctrine. He didn't change anything here because he's not dealing with the church. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. And that he saith, a new covenant hath he made the first old, now that which is decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. And of course, uh, this, is, this is where we're at with it. And uh, the old one is done with, and he's ready to start the new one. And then we get into chapter 9. And in chapter 9, we get into... Another aspect of this, we just laid out the new covenant. Now we're going to see how the new covenant relates to Christ and and his sacrifice as that relates to the Old Testament tabernacle. And this is a tremendous chapter. Then verily the first covenant, still talking about the covenant, had also ordinances and divine services and a worldly sanctuary. Worldly in the sense of it was in this world, not worldly in the sense that it was bad. Because we're talking about two different tabernacles. The one that man pitched, that would be the worldly one in the world, and the one the Lord pitched, which is in heaven. For there was a tabernacle made, the first wherein was a candlestick, uh, the table, and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary, after the second uh, veil of the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer, the Ark of the Covenant overlaid around about with gold, wherein was golden pot and the name and Aaron's rod that budded and the tables of the covenant. Now, uh, and over it the cherubims of glory shadowing the mercy seat of which we cannot now speak particularly. 
Now these things were thus ordained. A priest went always into the first tabernacle, uh, accomplishing the service of God. But under the second went the high priest alone once every year, not without blood, which he offered for and uh, errors of the people. Now, I want you to see something. Say you're reading this. We already know Exodus, and that lays out the tabernacle, but when you come here, something's not right. Notice he, notice, let me read it here. Notice here he goes from the second where the candlesticks and all that is into the Holy of Holies. Notice here he doesn't mention the outer court with the brazen altar. Do you catch that? See, that's serious Bible study. That's coming through this thing and looking at it and saying, well, wait a minute. Why did he leave out the outer court with the brazen altar uh, and the laver of water, why did he just go right into the second and into the, uh, into the third? Because what we're dealing with is a new covenant that's going to be given in the millennium. You know why he didn't even mention the first court here with the brazen altar? Because Christ's sacrifice was already made once and it's not going to be in the millennium because Christ's sacrifice was made once and for all. So there's no need for the brazen altar anymore. There's no need to make the sacrifice of Christ dying on the cross on that brazen altar of fire. So it's not mentioned here because Christ already took care of it. So in the millennium, we go right into the second and into the third with a new covenant. There's no need for the brazen altar. There's no need for the labor of water to wash your feet every time you go in and out. It's a picture of, of our getting right with God. You know why? Because church age is over. And the brazen altar is no longer part of it. Now that ought to fix it for time and eternity with somebody who believes they're saved in the millennium the same way you're saved here. No, because there's no brazen altar here. He doesn't mention it. You know why? Because there's no need for it. Christ already paid it. It's little things like that that you catch when you're a serious Bible student. When you get your mind so filled up with the Word of God that the principles are overriding everything in your world and you're reading whatever you're reading and it's jumping out at you all over the place, you don't miss things like that. Because the Holy Spirit of God inside you, you start coming down through that, reading about the Holy of Holies and the second and the priest doing the work and you come down through that and then the Holy Spirit says, did you miss something here? Is there something, that you, something you missed? Did you see what was not there? And you look at that and you say, where's the first part? Where's the outer court? Where's the brazen altar? He doesn't mention it because we're going to deal with Christ's sacrifice in this chapter compared to the new covenant and there's no need for a brazen altar because Christ already died on the cross. You don't beat the book, man. And you know what? You don't get that out of the Greek. You don't get that out of the Hebrew. You get that out of the English Bible God gave you. And I'll tell you what, you can search the Greek and Hebrew the rest of your life and never find anything out like that. Because that's not what God intended. Oh, we're going to get into it tomorrow. We'll have fun with it tomorrow. So he comes down here and he says, uh, now what, verse 6, now when these things were thus ordained, the priests always went into the first tabernacle accomplishing the service. That's where your ordinary common priest went. And in that was the candlestick, the table of shoe bread, uh, you know, and the, uh, the censer. And, the, uh, and, and all that stuff. And then when you went in on the inside, was the third one was the Ark of the Covenant, the Holy of Holies. 
And uh, inside that thing were, was manna, uh, Aaron's rod, and then uh, the priest's rod, uh, or the priesthood, uh, oh, excuse me. Inside that was manna. There's your KJ 1611 authorized version. Aaron's rod. There's the priesthood. And then the uh, Ten Commandments. There's the nation of Israel. And everything is found in there and uh, into the Holy of Holies. We now look, notice verse 7, but into the second. It should be the third, see? And then that would be your key if you're studying your Bible. You go back to Exodus 25 in those places, he clearly tells you that there's three sections. And now he's telling you here that he's going in, he's going in but, but under the... Uh, uh, but under the, uh, there's the outer court, first section, the inner sanctum section, and then there's the Holy of Holies. And in verse 7, he's talking about the priest going into the Holy of Holies, which in Exodus 25 is the third compartment, but here it's called the second compartment. You know why? Because he did away with the outer court. That should be your key that you catch it, if you're paying attention. And of course, that's when he goes in on the Day of Atonement. The Holy Ghost thus signifying that the way unto the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was yet standing. Um, which was a figure of the time when, when present in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to the conscience. Now what he's saying here is that God in the Old Testament under this Old Testament structure worked through man's conscience and the law. So he followed the law, his conscience, and he gave the gifts and the sacrifice, but they could not make him perfect. Which stood only in meats and drinks and divers washings and cardinal ordinances uh, imposed on them until the time of Reformation. And the time of Reformation would be when the New Testament church starts. Uh, so it's a thing where, uh, you know, and and... And just as the Christ, and just as the, you know, when you look at the tabernacle, you got the three sections originally in the Old Testament. You got the outer court, you got the secondary court, which is second heaven and the third heaven. So Christ dies on the cross in the outer court, the brazen altar. He goes up through the second heaven. He goes in through the deep, the veil, and into the holy of holies and presents his sacrifice. And that's the picture that you have. Now it says, but Christ being uh, come and high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, the one up in heaven, uh, and, not with made, uh, and not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building. In other words, the one up there that he went up through, the Lord pitched and not man, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but of his own blood, entered in once to the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption. Now, <clears throat> now that's, a, that's a key verse there because we, we make so much emphasis on the death of Christ. <clears throat> but I'm not saying that we shouldn't. But you've got to keep it in perspective. Notice verse 12 didn't say anything about his death. Verse 12 says, Neither by the blood of go uh, uh, goats and calves, but by his own blood. The key to your salvation is not him dying. Though he had to die, but that's not the key. The key to his dying and your salvation is his blood. And that is the sticking point for every liberal on this planet, the blood of Christ. Uh, it's the blood. It's the blood. He told him back in Exodus, when I see the blood, 
And it's the blood of Christ that redeems us. Not just his death, it's the blood. For if the blood of bulls and goats and of the ashes of a heifer, that'll be the red heifer back there in Numbers 19.2, uh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through his eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And again, you can make a spiritual application of that to the church, but he's not talking directly to you and me. Again, he's talking to the Jews, and he's saying, hey, look, you guys killed the Messiah. You guys took everything. You see a version of this in Acts chapter 7 when Stephen preaches his final sermon. He, he hits on a lot of these things because he goes after the national aspect of Israel and then brings them up and says, hey, you know what? You, you thumbed your nose at God all through your history, and now God sends you the Holy One that could take away your sins, and you killed him. And they, they stoned him for it. And Paul is basically saying the same thing here. He's just not getting into all the details. And he says, and for this cause, he is the mediator of the New Testament. By that means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the first testament, which were, uh, are called, might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. Now, he's telling a great doctrinal truth here. And you've heard me say this many, 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 many times. Verse 16. For where a testament is, there must also necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is in forth after men are dead. Otherwise, it is no strength at all while the testator liveth. He just told you right now that Christ separated the Old Testament from the New Testament through his shedding of his blood and his death. And for this cause, verse 15, he is the mediator of the New Testament. He's telling the Jew that Christ now is the mediator of the New Testament because he brought the New Testament in and those New Testament that come in comes in because of his death. And with that mediator of the New Testament, the Old Testament has passed away and now the New Testament that is relegated through the testator, Christ, will bring with it the promise of eternal inheritance. Notice, he didn't say eternal salvation. Did you see that? If it was written to you, he'd say eternal life. They don't get eternal life like you get it. They get an eternal inheritance. It's little words like that that you have to catch. And when you don't catch it, then you wind up being a neo-evangelical or some goofy Baptist that thinks everybody's saved down through history, just the church, just like you were in the church age. He didn't say, he didn't say the promise of eternal life because Israel doesn't get, individuals don't get eternal life in the sense that you and I get it. They get eternal inheritance. And boy, there is a big difference when you lay out the two doctrines of it, which we obviously don't have time to do today. And then our great verse in 16 or 17, for where a testament is, there must also of necessity. In other words, this is absolutely necessary for this to happen, is what he's saying. The death of the testator. The New Testament comes into effect when Christ dies. The problem is nobody knows it. And this leads to one of the other big issues that preachers today, I've heard it all my life, 
They have no clue of that intermediate period between the death of Christ in Acts chapter 1 and uh, Acts chapter 7. No clue at all. And uh, they just do not see and understand that, that the church age goes through a transition. God does everything through a transition. When you look at it, the church is called out in Matthew chapter 19 when he sends the 12 out. That is where the church is now called out, but nobody knows it. The church goes into effect at the death of Christ, but nobody knows it. The church gets empowered at the day of Pentecost, but nobody knows it. And then the church gets revealed after God gives them that transition time to accept Israel one more time, Acts chapter 7. That's why he's standing. When they reject that, then everything is in effect, but nobody knows it until Paul shows up somewhat, 12, 13 years later, and then he reveals it. It's called out in Matthew. It's empowered at the death of Christ. Uh, excuse me. It uh, goes into effect at the death of Christ, empowered at Pentecost, revealed in Paul. And that's the way it works. And of course, um, you know, it's, it's just one of those things that they don't get it. And it, I'm telling you right now, um, it's a thing where the, the New Testament went into effect at the death of Christ because he is the testator. So, in Bible study, fundamentally, that means everything in Matthew, Mark, and I've said this before, this is no new to you, everything in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John up to the death of Christ and the resurrection is still in the Old Testament. See, that's a key to Bible study. That's why you won't get in John 3 and think when Nicodemus is told, except a man be born again, that he's talking about Nicodemus being born again. Nicodemus couldn't be born again if he stayed up all night with a laser beam and a flashlight. It couldn't happen. This is why when you get into Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, everything in there directly is to the nation of Israel in one of four ways. Matthew, king of the Jews. Mark, a servant as Israel. Uh, Luke, the son of man. And John, the son of God. Now, you can apply things to yourself in there, but not directly. And some of the things you just simply cannot apply to you. Or you'll wind up losing your salvation. Or as it seems, can't. But if you stay with the verse, it tells you you can. This is where your heresy comes in. Because people don't know how to rightly divide the word of truth. They don't see that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is still in the Old Testament officially up to the death of the testator. And I know. Somebody says, well, they're found in the New Testament. Yeah, I know. Go back to sleep. Take 100 sleeping pills and just try to call me in the morning. It's a thing where they just, they don't get it. They just don't get it. And that's the difference between real Bible study and pretenders Bible study. So it says, whereupon neither the first testament was dedicated without blood. That's the Old Testament. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and of goats with water and scarlet wood and hyssop and sprinkled both the book and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the testament which God hath enjoined unto you. Moreover, sprinkled, uh, he sprinkled uh, with blood both the tabernacle and all vessels of the ministry. Now that is an Old Testament thing that Moses did that foreshadowed a picture of blood, even though it could not, you're going to see as we get into, uh, get into all of this about it, 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 couldn't, uh, it, it, it couldn't pay for their sin. And almost all things, 
uh, are by law purged with blood. Without shedding of blood is no remission. That was part of the Old Testament sacrifice, except the shedding of the blood was the innocent animal that you killed and then you burnt on the brazen altar. It was therefore necessary that the patterns, there it is, of things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifice than these. For Christ has not entered into the holy places made with hands, Old Testament, here it comes, which uh, holy places made with hands, here it comes, which are the figures of the true, see? But unto heaven itself now appear the presence of God for us. In other words, as I told you earlier, he went up through first heaven, atmosphere, second heaven, into the holy of holies, the third heavens, which is the true, see? The pattern of things in the heavens, it's the true. The holy places, not made with hands, which the there are figures of the true of of the, of the true, but the one in the Old Testament isn't the true deal. The true one is the eternal one. That is the pattern by which God used to give Moses his pattern. Nor yet that he should offer himself often, as the high priest entered into the holy place every year with blood of others. And basically, he's saying where the high priest had to do this, and this is the. This is the better testament. This is the better new covenant. The Old Testament, they had to do it every year. Um, Christ did it one time. And this is why what we have now, and he's trying to tell the Jew this, is better than what they have. And he says, For then must he often uh, suffered since the foundation of the world, but now once in the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Now see that? Now see that, verse 26, for then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world, but now once in the end of the world. Well, wait a minute. This is talking about the church and me. That was 2,000 years ago. That wasn't the end of the world. That was the beginning of the church age. What's he talking about? Hath he appeared to put away the sin by the sacrifice of himself? That's the second coming. See that word appeared? Anytime you find that word appeared, you watch it because the context most likely will be the second coming of Christ. This is to Israel. And this is him appearing to the nation of Israel and at the end of the world, at the end. And he's appearing to them, showing them that he paid for their sins as a nation. And that the Old Testament covenant is gone and the New Testament covenant is about to begin as is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment. Now that's a good general verse that we can all use because everybody dies and everybody's going to a judgment. Unsaved man is going to the great white throne and the Christian is going to the judgment seat of Christ. It's, so it's true there. That's a verse you can use openly, honestly, and just lay it completely out. No problem. And as it appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment. Now here it comes. It's going to sum it all up for us in this last verse. So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many and unto them that look for him shall he appear ah the second time without sin unto salvation. Second coming. None of this has anything to do with the church. Everything I've read to you goes to the Jew 
and the Jew, notice, you find the first coming and the second coming. Look what it says there again. So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him shall shall appear the second time. See, they weren't looking for him the first time, but they'll be looking for him the second time because the tribulation will make all the difference in the world. And uh, there's a nice little little nugget in that you could preach. Most of God's people, uh, when they get saved, they don't see him and appreciate him uh, at their salvation. But once they go through the tribulation in their life, then they're looking for him. So you can take that and make it a nice little devotion out of it. Next time we have volleyball or softball, which will probably be 20, 30 years from now, you can use that if you can remember it. So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. Now when it says without sin, it's talking about at the first coming of Christ, he bore the sin of the world. This time he's not coming to bear the sin of the world. He's already done that. He's coming to bring Israel their salvation. This is Romans chapter 9 and Romans chapter 11. Therefore, all Israel shall be saved. Well, we'll hold up there.